Last week it dawned on me that we no longer have any devotees to preach to. They used to be devotees, look at them now. So were they. And them, these people. Soon enough, So I have come here to talk to our family. No more pretenses. So I think I can speak my mind freely. Because I think it's time we step up our game. I know I keep saying that every day, but I mean it really this time. Because we have very little time on our hands, although it feels like we have a lifetime ahead of us without a sense of urgency, and in fact doing exactly what it is that we need to be doing, what we ought to be doing, we're not going to get any results. And I'm sure all of you have come some way on the path. But enough of the sugar coating. Now we've got to get straight to the point. I know I, I used to do these talks to a computer screen. And no one in front of me. I can manage that. If I'm speaking to an audience I don't know, I can manage that by looking at a computer screen. But when I look at your faces and I know who you are, especially with that prayer mat on your shoulders, I can't pretend that you are novices to the Dhamma. I can't pretend that... I can't pretend an artificial distance between you and I. I feel you're all part of this this mission, then it just seems so unnatural for me to come here and sit down and talk to you like you're all strangers. Although some of the faces might be new, I know almost everyone, if not all of you, have all been listening to the, these talks, you've been coming along on this journey, and you're prepared to invest your life in this. Investing time is one, but investing your life is a, is a whole new ballgame. It is because you want to invest your life, you've come all the way. All the way from Netherlands. All the way from Canada. What for? Because you want to invest your life in, the, in this venture. So then we should cut to the chase. We should get down to business. Hmm? Enough of the tea and cakes. We need to get down to business. 
So there will be those who might be a little bit disadvantaged and that will be those listening to us online. But I don't really know what to do about that. Because as I said, I can speak to a computer screen and pretend that I'm talking to someone I don't know. But when I have an audience in sat in front of me, I have to talk to them. Otherwise, I need all of you to turn, your, to turn around so I can just talk to the back of your heads and pretend I don't know any of you. That I suppose I could manage. But when you're looking at me like that, and I know that we've spoken about these things in the past, and, you, and I know that you are in various programs, like the Anagarika, Anagarika programs, and the Uasi Uasi programs, Sravika, Sravika programs, and I know the kind of advice, the kind of guidance that you receive there, and then to come here, and for me to babysit you, it just doesn't seem very natural at all. So, my vision, my ambition for you from here on is to prepare yourselves to be ambassadors of the Dhamma. So one, you can be a living, breathing, exemplary for the Dhamma itself. You can be missionaries for the Dhamma so that when people meet you, they come across you. Within a few words, you can transform their lives. For that, that transformation must have happened within you. Because you have to be the message that you carry. You have to be that message. If you are not that message, no matter how hard you try to convey that message, people are not going to be convinced. You have to be that message. People must look at you and feel the need to come and ask you, what is your philosophy? What's your teaching? How come you are so different? How come you are not like the others? How come you are not the same person you were three years ago when we last met? You've changed. Those days you were pretty annoyed about almost all things. You always had a bucket list of things you wanted to achieve in your life. You had complaints and moans about various things in life. But today, look at you. What's, what's different? What's changed? How come you're always so at peace and so, so cool, calm and collected? What's the secret? I need people to look at you and come and ask you that question. It is when that has happened, you will have paid your debt. That has to happen. So you need to be the force that carries this, the Buddha's message, throughout the world. We all start somewhere, so don't feel that I'm setting on a huge burden on your shoulders and making you feel like I'm asking you to do something that is impossible or unachievable, and that is not so. But no matter where you are right now, this is where I want you to be, and that is where I will help you get, just as my teachers did and do for me. Because that prayer mat on your shoulder is a symbol. It is a symbol of the truth, just as this chiva is. This robe is a symbol of the truth. This is a boon 
or a vara, not that vara, it's a Sinhalese word. Vara means two things, one is come here as a command, but another meaning is a boon that you get given for something, something you've done, something you have achieved. So there are four boons, the four noble truths. That is what this robe represents. Come to me and I shall give you the, I shall give you the truth. That is what this robe represents. Come to me and you will get nothing but the truth. So with your prayer mat on your shoulders, that is what you should be a, a walking symbol of. Come to me and I shall give you the truth. People suffer because they don't have the truth. They don't know the truth. You have come all this way looking for the truth, haven't you? You are not content with what life afforded you. That is true. You are not content with what was available to you. You were not content with the cars that you drove, the houses that you had for yourselves, the, the money that you had to your name. You were not content with the inheritance that you got from your parents. You were not content with that. You were not content with your looks. You name it, you were not content with it. Whatever it is that you can think of, you were not content with it. That is why you have come all this way. All of you, you have come from various walks of life. Just imagine where we were a few years ago, three years ago, four years ago, six years ago, when this monastery was not here. A bunch of people, crazy. They all had a thought. We must make a change in this world. In this world initially, and in, the, in this world after that. That is that revolution that has happened. I've been telling you, there's a tsunami coming. Here's the breeze. Now you can smell it. The tsunami is coming. So we must prepare ourselves for that. This is our service to the sasana. Our service to the sasana begins with ourselves. So I need all of you to ensure that you are living, breathing specimens of Buddhist teaching. You must be one of, this, one of the fourfold Sangha, either a bhikkhu, a bhikkhuni, an upasaka or an upasika. There is no place for anyone else here. You must be one of these four. If you are not, I need you to become one soon enough. That is not asking you to convert. Not so. <clears throat> I'm not looking to proselytize anyone. But what I'm here to is to share with you the truth. Because, to be honest, none of us are looking for a religion or a god or a deity. None of us are looking for a superpower or an almighty. None of us are looking for that. Really, all we are looking for is the source of the truth so that we can all be free. We can be happy. That is what we are looking for. If it doesn't make us happy, we wouldn't be going after anyone. We wouldn't be doing any of the things we'd be doing if it doesn't make us happy. 
So it is only one thing that will set you free and one thing that can bring you that happiness and that is the truth. Today I am a follower of the Buddha because he gives me the truth. No other reason. If at any point I am convinced that this is not the truth, no sooner will I change my path. No sooner am I prepared to disrobe. I'm only here for the truth. How do I know this is the truth? Because I can internalize it and I can experience the freedom and the joy that I get out of it. If you are not experiencing that, then something's wrong with you, not with the Dhamma. In the face of adversities, in the face of problems, if you are not experiencing a difference in the way that you used to conduct yourself and you conduct yourselves now, then something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with your tact. Something's wrong with your strategy. Something's wrong in the way you conduct. Something's wrong in the way you practice. Fix that and you'll be fixed. That is what we're here to achieve. How do we fix ourselves? There are our forefathers have walked this path before us, as I told you last week. So this is, not a, this is not guesswork for us anymore, how fortunate we are to be in such a situation. This is not guesswork. There is no room for blind faith in this philosophy, how wonderful that is. No one expects blind faith of us. The Buddha never says, don't kill. He doesn't say, don't steal. He doesn't, take, don't, he doesn't say, don't lie. What he says is, practice the path. Realize the truth. Once you realize the truth, these things will no longer need to happen. Because it makes little sense to say, don't indulge in sensuality. I mean, you know, from a very young age, have you not taken those precepts? I shall not kill. I shall not lie. I shall not steal. I shall not indulge in sensual or sexual misconduct. I, you, you, you observe those precepts from a very young age, myself included. Can you put your hand on heart and say, therefore it never happened? From as you know, young ages, perhaps you know, five, six, seven, as soon as you started to realize that this is a monk, I'm a layperson, so these are the precepts, something I have to repeat after the monk, you know, soon enough you began to understand at least bits and pieces of what was what you were taking up as a as a practice, right? But you know, you took the priest how many times have we precepted ourselves? We've lost count, haven't we? More times than you can care to count. Every single day. Now, if you've been schooling in Sri Lanka, every day we take the precepts. Before we leave home, right, we, take, we precept ourselves. Wherever there's an, an opportunity for a monk to come and uh, do a, you know, some kind of a ceremony or something, we, we observe the precepts. Just undertaking these precepts itself is, is not a... It's not a guarantee that we are, we are, we are pu purified inside. We don't become holy just by saying Panatipada Veda Mani Sikkapada Samadhi. That transformation happens within us when we understand the truth. See, the precepts were perhaps laid down by the Buddha, and, I, and there are various references in the Tripitaka. But what the Buddha requests, what the Buddha advises us to do, is not not to kill. What he says is, take on the precept of training yourself so that killing 
will not happen. That is what he says. They are very different things. Let me give you an example. If you think this is worth a lot, if you think this is precious, let's say you think this is antique, it has antique value, maybe you, you, you think this is worth a million dollars, now you want to take it, perhaps. You think, you know, what, how much I could perhaps gain from it. Maybe if I took it and, just, and sold it to an antique shop, perhaps, you know, I'll, I can get myself a fortune. I can earn myself a fortune. So now you want to take it with you. But if I can somehow explain to you and convince you that this is just an old pot, it has, it has no value. I collect, picked it up from the rubbish. Take it to someone who can value it and they will tell you that it is worth nothing at all. At this point you realize, well, there's no point in stealing it because it has no value to me. Now you no longer steal. So for someone who wishes to steal, my advice is not don't steal. My advice is try and understand what it is you want to steal. Try and understand its nature. Once you've understood its nature, you will no longer need to steal. You no longer want to steal. Because when you want to steal and you don't, it's a vexation inside. How come good Buddhists have to suffer? That, is, that can't be so. I want, to engage in I want to engage in sensuality, but I shouldn't because I have observed the precepts. That is a punishment, isn't it? Don't you think so? I want to engage in sensual pleasures, but I have observed the precepts. I have observed the, the five precepts, the eight precepts, the ten precepts. I have observed the precepts of becoming an anagarika. I have observed the precepts of becoming a monk. So therefore I, shall, I should not. I should not. I must not. How about I don't need to? Which one sets you free? The truth helps you realize that. You don't need to. Otherwise it's just a punishment. Do you think Buddhist philosophy is a punishment? Do you fear the Buddha? Is that why you don't do bad things? As a young kid, I used to be like that. Because mother used to say, don't do naughty things. The Buddha will punish you. Oh my God. Oh, oh my Buddha. <laughs> I used to be scared. You know, he used to sit like this, you know, very composed. There was a Buddha statue at home. But I thought, you know, he must be looking at me. That's what they said, you know, he's looking at you. He's watching you every step. So, you better be careful. Because, of course, you know, this little mind couldn't understand what the Buddha was. I didn't understand what Nibbana was, what Parinibbana was. You know, the truth is, today we realize, you know, the Buddha no longer exists. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we are not really taking refuge in a person. We are taking refuge in the destination, where we want to go. Our destination is Nibbana. That is what the Buddha represents. It's a symbol. The Buddha is our destination. The Buddha is Nibbana. If you are to take refuge in, in a person, you know, you have to take refuge in a living person. Right? How can someone who does not live, who does not exist, give refuge to someone who does? We exist, the Buddha doesn't. How can he give us refuge? But the Buddha sought refuge in the Buddha. Do you know that? 
before he became the Buddha. He was a Bodhisattva. What he did was he sought refuge in the Buddha. That Buddha is Nibbana. Buddha is the truth. He sought refuge in the truth because it was the truth that set him free and therefore he spent the rest of his life, the remainder of his life, teaching this truth to all people, everyone he, he came across. Free yourselves. It is you who has to save yourselves. I can't do that for you is what he said. The Tathagata cannot do that. He is not our saviour. He does not hold you by your hand and say, come with me, I'll take you to Nibbana. He can't do that. Don't think of him as the captain of your ship. But instead, think of him as the lighthouse on the shore, shining a beacon of light to your ship, guiding you to the shore. So he's not the captain of your ship. He can't steer you. You've got to do that yourselves. But he can shine bright. Guiding you to a show. So don't be fooled to think that either the Buddha or the Swami Nuhanse can take you to Nibbana. I'm not your ferryman. I'm only a guide. Just as my teachers are my guide. As the great master was the guide for all of us. It is that guidance, that instruction that has ensued, that has prevailed for all these years. For two and a half thousand long years, those instructions have prevailed. They have continued on the shoulders of our ancestors, through the words of our ancestors. They have, they have taken it their responsibility. They've made it their responsibility to carry this truth all the way down to us so that today we are availed of it. So what do you think is our responsibility then? But you can't do this until you have internalized it. You have to practice what you preach. So I urge you to ask yourselves this question. You know, if someone asks me, how do you spot a good Buddhist? I have a very simple answer to that. No, it's not someone who does not kill. Cows don't kill. It is not someone who is a vegetarian. Really, <laughs> clearly. It is not someone who doesn't steal. What about the inmates in prisons? Do they steal anymore? They can't, so they don't. Does that make them good Buddhists? Not necessarily. There may be good Buddhists among them, but just because you don't steal doesn't, mean, doesn't make you a good Buddhist. What about if you don't lie? Well, let's say the king has decreed that anyone who was caught lying will have their tongues chopped off. Now, would you, would you lie? No, of course you wouldn't. For fear of punishment, that is not the making of a good Buddhist. If you wish to consider yourself a good Buddhist, ask yourself, are you free from the slavery of your own mind? Are you free from the slavery of your own mind? Do you still feel the urge to do things that you're not supposed to do? And when you do, it's okay if you still do, that's fine. Because I don't expect you to be arahants. It's okay if you do. But when you do, what do you do? Do you relieve yourself? Or in those moments, do you apply the Dhamma? 
It is in, only in the moments where you apply the Dhamma can you call yourselves a Buddhist. Simple as that. So therefore, there is no such thing as a Buddhist. You know, none of you are Buddhists really. And neither am I. This robe on me does not make me a Buddhist. Because a Buddhist is someone who lives in a chitta. It's not a someone. It's an attitude. That's a chitta. Here's another one. Here's another one. I've got a problem. I've got a problem. I'm angry. If this chitta is angry, is this a Buddhist chitta? Is this a chitta that contemplates on Anicca and Anatta? Is it? No, if it is, then how could it have become got angry? Right? So that is not a Buddhist chitta. This is because Buddhist chittas, I'm not talking about Buddhist people. I'm talking about Buddhist chittas. That is the making of a Buddhist. This chitta comes up after that. It remembers that this chitta was angry. And then it thinks to itself, ah, if I'm angry, then there's one way to fix this problem. I should just, I should just go and find the person who's made me angry and tell them off for having upset me. Fight back. Retaliate. Avenge. What do you think? Buddhist? No. Take the next chitta. Comes back to his senses. Oh, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. That's not what we're supposed to do. I'm a Buddhist. Anicca. Reflecting on the truth. This is not the truth. Because whenever you see an entity, there are three ways in which you engage with that. You interact with that. Either affliction, affection, or you compare. These are the three things that will happen. Affection is raga, affliction is dvesha, and comparison is moha. But if that chitta recognizes anicca, that all things are merely conditioned manifestations, now, there is no fixed thing to either have an affection with, have an affliction with, or to compare with something else. Raga, Dvesha and Moha has no, have, have no grounds to stand on. There is a Buddhist chitta. So there are Buddhist chittas and non-Buddhist chittas. That's it. All chittas in this world you can separate. Put into these two categories. Buddhist chittas and non-Buddhist chittas. So, you know, when you, for instance, right, when you feel sensuality, lust, desire for something, and you indulge yourself in that, just because, you know, you have a piritnul around your wrist, or you've observed the precepts, or you've always known you and your family and your forefathers, and they've all been Buddhists, you know, ten generations, they've all been Buddhists, and you know this. But when you feel that lust, when you feel that desire, you just want to relieve yourself from it. Does that make you a Buddhist? Are you a Buddhist in that moment? Certainly not. I need you to, th I need you to come to this realization that a Buddhist, you need to try to give life to the Buddhist within you. Arise the Buddhist chitta. This is the bodhicitta. You have to make it arise within you. The bodhicitta. Bodhi is the truth. And a being who seeks the truth is called the Bodhisattva. 
That is a bodhisattva. So in any moment where you make an effort to seek the right answer, that is the moment at which or in which you are a Buddhist. So can you ask me if, I, if you are a good Buddhist? Is that a question you could ask me? I, I can't give you an answer. I'll have to ask a question back to you. Are you? And are you, are you a Buddhist, full stop, or are you just a Buddhist in, in a chitta? You're a Buddhist in a chitta. So there are no Buddhists who, who are born and there are no Buddhists who die. You know, we are not a Buddhist in our life. It is not a lifetime of Buddhists. They are merely chittas that are Buddhists. So what we must do then is, you know, in any chitta where you're suffering, okay, in any chitta where you're suffering, you're not a Buddhist. But in a chitta where you're not suffering. Because you can't be suffering if you're a Buddhist. Can you? If you're suffering, can you be a Buddhist? Because suffering is rooted in one of these three situations, either affection, affliction, or comparison. Think about it. Think about the moments where you have affection towards something. Don't you suffer? It may, it, you feel like you've got something to you, for yourself. You feel like you've got what you wanted. But in those moments, fear comes into your mind. The fear of losing what you have. The fear of losing what you've gained. And, you know, this is, this is a real fear. When you become whoever you want, right? Say you've, you've you fought hard to, you know, take a king, a great king, an emperor. They've fought hard to win for themselves a battle, a great war. Right? They've won the war, they've won the battle, and now they have a whole nation to themselves. Although they have it now, and they can claim themselves to be king of that nation, what have they... What are they fearing from them from that point on? Hmm? Yeah. The enemy. When might someone come and try and snatch my throne from me? It's always there. So, you know, wherever there is attachment in the mind, wherever the mind wishes for something, wherever the mind wants something, Folks, you know, you're never free in those moments. That is why the only way you can be free is to be free of wanting. And that is by reflecting on the truth. You can't want something that doesn't exist. Do you agree with that? You can't want something that doesn't exist? Hmm? Or do you want something that, things that don't exist either? I have three pens here. Do you want the fourth pen? Hmm? You can't want the fourth pen, right? Because there isn't a fourth one here. So you can't want something that doesn't exist. So the reason you want this is because to you, in your world, this pen exists. When you look at this, you identify a pen. And I don't mean just conventionally. Deep down, you see a fixed pen and now you want it. So therefore, you either have affection or affliction or comparison. How so comparison? If you have one with you, now you're comparing. Is this a better pen? Or is mine a better pen? This is true for everything. Ask yourselves, you know, do you not compare yourselves the way you dress, your appearance, when you go to a party? I don't know if you still... I can't, do you? I don't know. 
I know you people don't go to parties. When you go to a party, now you, you dress up for that, you dress up for the occasion, that's why I say, you dress up for the occasion. You dress up for the occasion and you go there and you, you look at others, you look at how, how well they've come dressed for it. You know, you look at their shoes, you look at their jacket, you look at their hair, you look at the jewelry, right? And you ask yourself, how do I compare? Have I, have I come suitably dressed for this occasion? Questions that begin to bother you. Sometimes you might share pictures with about you know how you've dressed yourself before you go to the party. Maybe with your, your a close friend who you know is also going to be coming, and you ask them, "How are you going to come? Here's what I'm going to be dressed in. Do you how do you think? You know what do you think about this? When you put your pictures up on Facebook, what are you looking for? Yeah, absolutely. Comments, likes. Hmm? You're looking for recognition. What you're looking for is for people to look at you, compare you, and regard you as, as, as good. You want that recognition. You want them to confirm your suspicions. You want to be seen as someone who, is, who, who looks nice, has a good appearance. You want to stand out of the crowd and you want people to confirm that. You want people to acknowledge. We talked about this last week. The desire for acknowledgement. Moha. That comparison. So in these moments, ladies and gentlemen, I need you to realize that this is suffering that's going on in your mind. You need to come to your senses about this. This is suffering that's going on in your mind. How can you be happy if you always have to compare yourself with someone? How can you be happy? Yesterday's sermon, we took an example, the single sermon. Right? A kid gets 95 in his maths exam. 95. 95 out of 100. But if all he can, thinks about is comparing, then do you think he gets an opportunity to enjoy the fact that he's, he scored 95 in his exam? No, he doesn't. Because what he does is he goes asking others you know, in the class, what did you get? How much did you get? What did you get? See, he doesn't even get to enjoy his, the, the fruit of his hard work and labor. He's worked his socks off to get 95, but he doesn't get to enjoy that because he's com constantly comparing. Is there anyone else in class who scored better than me? What about the guy who only got five marks? He doesn't care. He doesn't care what other people got. He enjoys the five marks that he got. He enjoys that. See, I got five marks for my test. Whereas a guy who got the 95, he doesn't enjoy. So, you know, what's the point? What's the blooming point? If you worked so hard, if you burnt the midnight oil, if you worked your socks off, right, and you got this, 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 this score, this mark, and you can't enjoy it, then what was the whole point? Of it. In the same way, just think about it, right? In your lives, ladies and gentlemen, you, you might have set yourself you know, certain goals, ambitions, and you know, think about your past, right? Where you've worked hard to get some of the things you have today. Maybe you liked a nice car, so you've got yourself a nice car. You know, it's a big car, it's a nice car, it's an expensive car, and now you drive around in it hoping that your car is the best car. Right? So when you see another car, you want, you know, you, you compare. You can't help yourself, but you compare. 
and you're driving a certain brand and you look around and you see, oh, that's a better brand than this one. It's a more expensive brand than this one. I don't like that. Oh, you feel deflated. But if you see that, you know, you've come in a nice car, the other cars around you, then they're not so good, they're not so expensive, they're not the latest model. Now you feel like, you know, your ego feels inflated. You enjoy that, you like that. So you're suffering. You're suffering and you're the guy who's got the car. <laughs> How can you suffer if you're the guy who's got the car? But you do. But then think about the time when you didn't have the car. Did you not suffer then? Of course you did. You still suffered. Oh, I'm the guy who doesn't have the car. I better try and get myself a car. Hmm? So you go get a, try and get yourself a loan, maybe do some overtime, maybe get some credit for it. Right? You know, you go shopping for a car, you, you know, go buy, you know, do test drives and looking around, you're looking on Auto Trader, whatever. You, know, you go and look for a car. That is no easy task, but eventually you find one. Right? So before and after, you're still suffering. Then I have to ask the question, what was the point? Let me ask you this question. Give me a simple answer. When you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. What if you felt hungry even after you ate? Would you eat again? <laughs> exactly. You eat when you're hungry, right? but you eat and your hunger doesn't go away. You're still hungry. Would you eat again? You try eating because that is all you know to do. Because that is what people say. When you're hungry, eat. So you eat. You just keep on shoving things down your, down your mouth. Right? But no matter how, what, how much you eat, you still feel hunger. Right? Don't you think you'd be a fool to, to not to stop and think, hang on a second, I'm eating, I just keep on eating, but my hunger is not going away. Perhaps this is not the right thing to be doing when I'm hungry? Hmm? Wouldn't you, would you, don't you think that someone who just keeps on eating... And when their hunger doesn't go away and they just keep on eating, don't you think that you should consider them a fool? Now, just think about the life that people live. They keep on doing things in the name of happiness, but before and after they're still unhappy. So why do they keep on doing it? That's all they know, That's all they know to do. Exactly. That's all they know to do. This is because they haven't seen the truth. It is only the truth that makes you happy. If ever you know and you, you don't feel happy in your lives, you don't feel content in your lives, you feel that something is always you know, getting on your nerves, you feel that happiness is always so evasive, happiness is always like a step ahead of me, I've, I've not achieved it, then just one thing you need to realize, you haven't understood the truth yet. That's it. The truth is there to be understood. It's there to be realized. It is there. Look at those who have realized the truth. They're content with their lives. You know, I'm not here living the life of a monk because I've got no other option. I do this because this is the only option. Now you think, wait, you just said no other option. Well, there is another option. I could disordain. I could go back to my worldly life if I wanted to, but you know that I've come from that life. I've come from that life because I realize that is not the answer. There is no alternative. There is no meaningful alternative. There is no sensible alternative. Eating when I'm hungry is not the answer. I've realized that. 
That is why you don't see me shoving stuff down my throat. Going on a trip when I want to is not the answer. Going on holiday when I want to is not the answer. Throwing a party when I want to is not the answer. Because how many parties have you been to? You were never content. Watching a movie when you want, when you feel like watching one is not the answer. That is why no matter how many movies you watch, you still want to watch the next one. If they said the next Matrix is coming next year, hmm? just think about it. Next year. And let's, say, let's just say, right, if you become an Anagarika, you're not allowed to watch movies. Right? We have that as a rule. Let's say, but the next Matrix is coming in 2025. I say, right, come on, if you want to join us in Anagarika, come now. <laughs> Perhaps there'll be some among you that'll say, Swaminasa, can I come in 2026? <laughs> Because you feel that is a punishment. Right now, you feel that the punishment is, I want to do something, if I don't get to do it, that's a punishment. No, but we need to realize the truth. Doing what you want to do is not the answer. You need to do what you need to do, not what you want to do. You must understand that these two are very different things. If you ever come to me asking for something, I'll always ask you a question. Do you want me to give you what you want? Or do you want me to give you what you need? When you go to the shop, you buy what you want. You go to the theater, you, 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 you go to watch what you want. You put on your headphones and you plug it to what do you call it? Spotify. You listen to what you want. Here, you get what you need, not what you want. What you want will never make you happy. It will just keep digging that hole and it just gets getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and it will never be fulfilled. But given what you need, problem solved. It might take a little while, but how much experience have you got of getting or seeking what you want? Has that solved your problem? You know, look around the room. People of various ages... Right? Some in their teens, some in their middle age, right? some in the later part of their life, some in the last part of their life. How old are you? 25? 35? 45? 65? Last five? Did it work out for you? Going after what you want? Has it worked out for you? Did it do the trick? Are you content? Are you satisfied? Are you joyful? Then why are you here? <laughs> You've realized one thing. And that is, going after what you want is never going to make you happy. So now you're looking for an alternative. And here in the sasana we have the alternative. The answer to contentment is bliss. The answer to contentment is bliss. And Nibbana is that bliss. Freeing yourself from the desire, freeing yourself of wanting is the answer. That is contentment and that is bliss. So whenever you have problems in your life, ladies and gentlemen, you know, these problems, they don't, they don't last forever. Right? Problems, in fact, you know, problem, a problem is only a problem to you, to the one who sees it as a problem. Like the maze we talked about a couple of weeks ago. If you focus on the problem, you see the problem. If you focus on the answer, you see the answer. You know, a broken car, is that a problem or an answer? 
Depends who you ask. Ask the guy at the garage whose business it is to fix broken cars. To him, a broken car is an answer because he has another problem. How do I pay the bills? To pay the bills, I need broken cars. Right? So you see? But to you, because it's your car, it's your problem. So is a broken car a problem or an answer? Aha, uh-huh, you can't answer that question. You can't answer that question objectively. You have to answer that question subjectively, meaning the problem is not in the object. That is why you can't answer it objectively. It's not in the object. This pen, I open it. Problem or answer? Depends. Hmm? If I want to write now, this is the answer. If I don't want to write, and I want, I'm going to leave this room now, this is a problem. Because this pen will dry out in a moment. So therefore I have to close it. Okay, let's close it then. Now what? Problem or answer? Depends again. Am I going to leave the room now, or am I going to start writing with it? Hmm? So you see, if, the, if neither problem nor solution is in the object, because it's not objective, it's subjective, then is this a problem or a solution? It's neither. Meaning the problem does not exist outside. See? So whenever you're in a state of vexation, if you try to look at the problem outside, you will never, you will never f- be able to fix it because the problem isn't outside. It is subjective. Subjective meaning it's within you. So look within for the answer. Because here's what, what will happen. If you think this, is, this pen should be open, someone else will want the pen closed. So now you have a competition with them. It's survival of the fittest from there on. If they're, if they're fitter than you, they'll come and somehow close the pen. Right? And then now you have a fight with them. Shall, I, shall we open the pen? Shall we close the pen? There's a war now. There's a battle. But... If you neither want this closed nor open, let it be. Whatever it is in whatever state it's in, let it be. Here I'm talking about the mind. Not you know, if you need to write, of course you have to open the pen. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm only using this as an analogy. Yeah? But if there's a, if there's a situation in which you expect a particular outcome, you expect a particular outcome, now you are the one with the problem. Because there is no outcome that has to be. The outcome is only whatever you desire. There is no outcome that has to be. Must it rain today or must it not? What do you think? Must it or must it not? Ah, it depends. Absolutely. If you think to yourself, I've put the clothes on the clothesline at home. If it rains today, then the whole thing is going to be wet again. How am I going to dry them? Now you don't want it to rain. Right? But let's say there's a drought. There's no water. Now we need the rain. That's why, you know, even if it, whether it rains or it doesn't rain, people always have complaints, right? People are always complaining. When it rains, people are complaining, it's too, it's too rainy here, it's always raining. Oh, such a dull, such a, such a grim day, can't even go outside, I have to get the umbrella, it's raining. When it doesn't rain, oh, no rain, it's not been, no, no, no rain for a while now. Complaining. So, uh, you know, God's like, geez, what do you want, man? Make your mind up. (laughs) You know, like, 
you take the same you know the same world right two sets of people one one half asking for rain the other half saying please don't rain uh, if it's the same god <laughs> would you like to play his play his role for a day <laughs> try being god for a day i'm dead certain if there were if there was a god he would come to ordain in this asana <laughs> he'd give up <laughs> you can't make these people happy <laughs> he'd be so vexed so you know so strange so 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 stressed out how do you make these people happy one day they're asking for it the next day they say they don't want it and in the same house one person's asking for it the other person's saying i don't want it and they both come and pray now which one which prayer do i answer try being god for a day it's the toughest job i tell you it is the toughest job that is why god punishes those who go and ask for things that he is not able to give he punishes them when you overstep the mark and ask for things right when you are someone who has a void in your mind and you expect god to fulfill that god says hey be happy with what i give you don't come asking for things i'm not going to give you that now you suffer that's why i say as buddhists you don't need to go begging borrowing or stealing you don't need to do that because there's an alternative free your mind of wanting now you're happy with whatever equanimity you are okay with anything whether it rains or shines oh so be it metaphorically i mean of course you understand this right rain shine i'm talking about a metaphor here now you know i want you to do this i want you to you know whenever you have problems in your lives whenever you you come across various issues right situations ask yourself are you are you someone who will look outside for answers who you expect the world to change the world around you to change you want other people to change you or you know are you someone who complains about things like why does why does she talk to me like this why is he talking to me like this why do why do they ignore me why are they neglecting me why can't they just listen to me are you someone like that or do you consider yourself as a good buddhist make that an opportunity to practice what makes you stronger what doesn't break you makes you stronger right if you want to be someone who's 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 a good boxer right if you want to be a good boxer you need two things ladies and gentlemen one you need the technique you need to learn the technique you need to learn the learn the technique of you know throwing a good punch to punch yourself and guard yourself you need these two things secondly you need a punch bag so you can practice and the punch bag is there to challenge you without the punch bag just throwing punches here and there is not going to make you a good boxer you need the resistance that is what makes you stronger that is what makes you a good boxer you need resistance without resistance how do you grow so with, if if i were to isolate you from all the problems in your life how are you going to become an arahant i ask you you are never going to become one you will understand you will know the dhamma but you will have no situations to apply it in so how do you become better at it remember learning math at school first the teacher teaches you how to ma- how to add two numbers and then what do they do they give you a thousand sums go and solve this see resistance resistance when you go to the gym what do you do resistance 
If you want to run on the bike, right, you, you incline it a little bit, right, to give you a little bit more resistance. First you run, on the, run it flat and then you, you put it on incline. Resistance. When you do your weights, resistance. Because it is the weights that make you stronger. Now, if that is so in that case, how about in the case of the application of Dhamma? You need a problem to apply it in. So I tell you, you know, if you were to pray to God right, and say, God, I need to attain Nibbana. Now God will ask you one question. Do you know what you need to do? First he'll ask you. And you say, yes, I know, because I know the Noble Eightfold Path. I know the Four Noble Truths. I know Anicca Dukkha Anatta. I know all these things. Right? Then God says, all right, be prepared. I'll send you my army. <laughs> then from that day on, you know what he's going to do? He'll send you all sorts of grief. All sorts of challenges. He'll send you enemies. He'll send you people who will come and praise you. As well as people who will come and accuse you. If in the face of praise... You fail. Can you not fail in the face of praise? Can you not? Of course you can. Oh, a lot of people fail in the face of praise, certainly, because they think this praise is given to me. Hmm? If, you, if you accept that praise as praise that has come to you, you have failed. What about blame? God will send you blame. And if you accept that the blame has come to you, Again, you have failed. The truth is, you have never been blamed, you have never been praised. Do you, do you agree? You have never been praised and you have never been blamed. Here's what has been praised and here's what has been blamed. Your actions. Always. When someone told you off for something, what was it for? For being you or for something you've done? It was something you've done. When someone says, well, you. Have you heard that? Well, you. Hey, man, well, you. Ever, anyone heard that? Well, you. Of course not. What have you heard? Well, well done. So what are, they, what are they praising? The deed. That is what they're praising, the deed. But if you're not able to spot that, and you think that praise is to me, now you think, you, they say, well done, you hear what? Well, me. Go jump in one. See, honestly, you know, if, if, if Nibbana was something that you had to, it was a dealing with God, okay? Let's just imagine if Nibbana was that, and you go to God and pray, God, please give me Nibbana. God will say, he'll ask one question first. Do you know what you need to do? If you say, no, I don't know what, you need, what I need to do, then God will say, no, get out. I can't help you. Go and find yourself a good teacher first. I can't help you. Then you go looking for a teacher. God might say, I'll send you a good teacher. Be ready. Right? So when you're ready, the teacher appears. This is, so, this is true everywhere. If you're ready, the teacher appears. So now you go looking for a teacher. A teacher teaches you this. What a good Buddhist is. A teacher teaches you, being Buddhist is not being a Buddhist person, but a Buddhist is your attitude. Is your application. Is your understanding of the true nature of things. Your understanding of the Four Noble Truths. You know, when, you, when I say these words, four noble truths, don't think of it as like, you know, some kind of 
philosophy that the Buddha taught. The Four Noble Truths, yes, it is a philosophy that the Buddha taught. But in, in, as a matter of fact, it is the truth about everything. It is the truth about existence. It is the truth about what you see around you. That is what the Four Noble Truths are. It is not some kind of myst, you know, mysterical, some kind of scripture somewhere you know, in a book. Right? We, have, we must all you know, someday aspire to go and read. That is not so. The Four Noble Truths applies to everything. The first noble truth of suffering. You might ask, well, why? Why are we talking about suffering? Well, because that is the problem that you have. The Buddha doesn't come into this world, you know, he's not coming on holiday. <laughs> the Buddha's advent is to serve a specific purpose. If suffering didn't exist in this world, there would be no Buddhas. Simple as that. The reason someone aspires to become a Buddha, right? the reason we have bodhisattvas, just as all of you, you are all bodhisattvas. The difference between you and a Sammasambuddha is that a Sammasambuddha did not have a teacher to help him become a Buddha. Whereas for all of you, you have a teacher to help you become a Buddha. So in, by that token, we are all bodhisattvas. What is a bodhisattva? Someone who is a seeker of the truth. So what God would say is, go find a teacher. Go find a teacher who can teach you what you need to do in the face of adversity. And once you've learned that, next he's got to do what? Give you plenty of adversity. And adversity comes in two forms. Praise and blame. Gain and loss. Happy times, sad times. The vicissitudes of life. There's four and four. Four of the good stuff, four of the bad stuff. The truth is, they're neither good nor bad. It's neither good nor bad. But when we look at it subjectively, we feel that part of it is good and part of it is bad. That is your subjective opinion. That is your subjective perspective on it. It is not so. Loss and gain are the same thing. Praise and blame are the same thing. It all depends on what and how we look at it. So, if you wish to attain to Nibbana, right, there's only one thing you need to do. In fact, two things you need to do. One, make sure you understand the Dhamma. Make sure your, your understanding of the Dhamma is sound. Make sure, you know, that, that is what these, these, these talks are for. This is, that is what the, the sessions after these talks are for. Like where the Swami says, come and sit down with you in, in a small group and they discuss and they make sure that you've understood the, the, the philosophy, you've understood the teaching, you understand what to do when, you, when, you, when you're faced with a problem. When you feel angry, what you need to do, you know, they explain to you because no one's taught us any other way. Right? So now we learn what is the alternative, what is the other way of doing it. And once you've learned that, next what you need is adversity. You need stuff to come at you. How do you become a man of the match? In a game of cricket, right? In any sport. How do you become the man of the game? How do you become successful? First, you need to learn the technique. Right? If you want to be a good batsman, you need to learn the technique of being a good batsman. You need to know how to handle the bat. How to guard the wicket. How to face a ball. These are techniques that you learn. But they don't pay you for that. What they pay you is for batting in a real game. Winning, 
To do that, all the balls that come at you are to take a wicket, not to keep you in the wicket. Yeah. Every ball that will come to you is a ball to take a wicket because the ball it is the opponent who bowls. You know, no one from your team is going to bowl at you, right? That's not a game of cricket. Your opponent is going to bowl at you and then you have to bat it. You use that energy. The energy comes from the ball. It's in the ball. I mean, if it's a fast ball, it's easier to score a, score a, um, a sixer because all you have to do is hold the bat in the right, the right angle because the energy that is, is contained within the ball. So you see, that the faster the ball that comes to you, the easier for you, it is for you to score. But for that, you have to be skilled. You have to, you have to, you know, to know the right technique. It is these two things. So if you want to win, you can't go onto the, onto the, onto the pitch and then say, I, I want to win this game, please don't throw any balls at me. How would you win? I know, I know the techniques, I know how to handle the bat, right? I know how to keep a wicket, but please don't throw any balls at me. What will they say? Get out. You're not here to play. <laughs> so, in Nibbana, on your path to Nibbana, the same has to be true. If you know how to face a challenge, next what you need is a challenge. So when they come, don't, don't shy away. Don't run away. Accept them and embrace them. Wish for them. Wish for more problems. Honestly, wish for more problems. Don't wish for less problems. Wish for more problems. Because the sooner you solve them, the sooner you get to your goal. Wish for more problems. These are all opportunities for you to practice. The fewer problems you get, the longer it's going to take you to get what you want. Ensure that you are skilled enough. So wish for more skill and wish for more problems. More of everything. So here's what we need to do. So as monks, as anagarikas, anagarikas, right? All of you. And to be monks and to be anagarikas and anagarikas. All of you. If you're here in the sasana, right, and you mean business, right, and you're not just here for a for a chit-chat. You're here and you mean business. Right? Brace yourselves and understand that here we deal with Nibbana in a very practical way. You must never come here expecting that in this monastery people will be so nice to me, so kind to me, so gentle, they will all be soft-spoken. We artificially don't give you that. Even if they're really nice people. <laughs> We'll tell them, don't be so nice. Sometimes, you know, when you come as a te- or even on a temporary program, you get a teacher. Now we tell them, don't be so nice to them. We don't, but we can do. Say, so, you know, sometimes people come here and they, all they want to do is meditate. If you want to meditate, don't you think that's a problem? Don't come here for meditation. Come here for Nibbana. Meditation is not the same as Nibbana. They're not synonymous. Meditation is what you want to do. Nibbana is what you need to do. Learn the skill to meditate as you walk, as you talk, as you eat. 
as you go about doing your things. Because meditation is reflection on the truth. It's contemplation on the truth. You don't need to be sat like this for that. You know, if meditation, if, if Nibbana is an action of the mind, what, why does the body have to be like this? If it is the mind that attains Nibbana, right, what, how does the body have to be? If the body is the one that attains Nibbana, yes. In fact, then the body has to be like this, flat. And the mind can do all sorts. So, you know, lying flat on, on your bed, you watch TV. Again, you can attain Nibbana like that as well then. If it's the body that, it, that attains Nibbana. But if it's the mind that attains Nibbana, then how must the body be, I ask you? Must it be like this? Or like this? How must the body be? You need to realize that these two are very different things. It is not the body that attains Nibbana. It is the mind that attains Nibbana. What is Nibbana? Realization of the truth. That's it. If you can only be happy when you are like this, then God help you. What happens if someone comes and chops off your arm? Now, what are you going to do? Like this? How are you going to attain Nibbana now? Where's your bliss? What's going to happen there? If you are paralyzed, can you not attain Nibbana from then on? Hmm? If you get a stroke, right, and now you're just a vegetable. Now you're just flat on your bed. People will come and wash you. They'll come and feed you somehow, right? They'll come and do. They'll come and tend to you. All your physical needs, people will look after. We can do that at you know, here. We, we can do all that. That's fine. If and as long as you still want to attain nibbana, because a nibbana is an affair of the mind, right? If you ha- if you become paralyzed, can you no longer attain nibbana? Can't you? But you can't sit like this. Then how do you attain Nibbana? That is what I'm saying. These two are not connected. They're unrelated. Don't join those two things together. You've seen on TV, you've seen in the magazines, you've seen on the internet, wherever they talk about meditation, it's always like this. Sat under a tree. And you've seen the Bodhisattva, right? The Buddha, attain, attaining Buddhahood, you are sat under the Bodhi tree like this, in this posture, the lotus posture. Perhaps he was sat like that, maybe. But it's not his body that attained Nibbana. It is his mind. In his mind, there was a battle going on. We don't see that, do we? We don't see the battle that was going on in his mind. The battle with Mara. You know, the last defilement he had talked about this one or two weeks ago. When the Mara came and said, Buddha, you have attained Buddhahood, haven't you? The Buddha says, no. It is not I who has attained Buddhahood. Mara tries to fool the Buddha. He says, you've attained Buddha, Buddha, haven't you? That's why he says, you know, this throne that you are sat on, it is mine. You'll recall the story. Mara says, that, that seat you are sat on, it doesn't belong to you, it belongs to me. Who's speaking? Mara. The self. This seat belongs to me, the Mara says. Now here, you know, in the story, the Mara is personified. Right? You know, they, this is the, the Vasavati Mara. But I said, you know, all these things for me, they have a, they have a much deeper symbol. They, they, they symbolize something else. For me, it means, this is only my personal interpretation of this. For me, it is the Buddha fighting that last battle where he feels it is I who is becoming a Buddha and now he has to let go of that idea altogether. No, it is not I who is becoming the Buddha. The Buddha has become. That's what's happened. 
There is no doer here, it's just the done. The, bu- the Buddha Chitta has a reason, not I. So, you know, when you are in the Valley Malu, right? When you're meditating, when you're you know, doing your meditation time or you're listening to the sermons or you're engaging in some kind of meritorious deed, ask yourself, do you feel that it is you who's doing it? Right? Whenever you feel these things, come back to your senses. Reflect on the Dhamma. Come back to Anicca. Yadanicca and we've spoken about this. Wherever you see Anicca, you will see Dukkha. Where you don't see Anicca, you see Self. Then you become self-conscious. Do you not catch yourself sometimes, you're self-conscious? Where are places where you become self-conscious? When you ask to, when you, when you stand in front of the mirror, you become self-conscious. Like when someone asks you to, you know, you're in a crowd and someone calls out your name. Huh? Me? Huh? Huh? I become self-conscious. Catch yourself when you feel self-conscious. These are the challenges that God gives you. Okay, here's another problem, solve it. Catch them, embrace them, be happy that you have problems. You know, you should always have a smile on your face. Come on, smile. It's free. Always have a smile on your face. And when someone asks you, why are you, so, why are you always smiling? Because I have two things. One, I know the path. Two, I have problems. That's why I'm smiling. <laughs> and don't smile if you, don't, if you have neither of these. You know the path, but you don't have problems. Don't smile. <laughs> You're in big problem. <laughs> the problem is you don't have problems. I often talk to our people, you know, monks, anagarika, anagarika, and so on. I tell them, you know, if you have, if you have desire within you, so be it. Let it be. By let it be, I don't mean let it be forever. What I mean is embrace it. This is this is this is the problem. This is what you have come to the sasana for. If you feel lust, if you feel like you know you you already had a meal and there's a piece of cake and you go, mm, who's going to solve that one? It's not yours, but you feel like you want it. If you feel that way, it's okay. It's okay. I'm not saying then go and eat it. What I'm saying is it's okay that you feel that way and then come back here. Do try to reflect on the fact that this is just a thought. This is what a thought is doing to me. Not to me. This is the thought. A thought has arisen. A thought of lust, a thought of sensual pleasure has arisen. That is what has happened. Because when you think about that, folks, when you, when you bring your attention to the fact that it is just a thought, right? Now you are reflecting on anicca, whether you know it or not. Let me explain this further. Take an example of where you are annoyed about something. Alright? It's raining. You are annoyed. It's not raining. You're still annoyed. <laughs> or you come in here and someone's taken the seat you're normally sat at. You're annoyed. You, you, you join the Pindapatha uh, procession and the food has run out. You're annoyed. Right? Someone's phone goes off. You're annoyed. Hmm? You're annoyed. When you're annoyed, first of all, be okay with that. First of all, be okay with that. I'm annoyed, yes. Be okay. Realize that this is just a chitta that is annoyed, not I'm annoyed. For this, you have to be in sati. Samma sati. This is one of the steps in the Noble Eightfold Path. Samma sati. You're aware. Insightfully aware. This is what mindful awareness is. 
You know, mindfulness is not just merely annoyed, 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 annoyed. Oh, I'm just annoyed. I'm just an annoyed person. That is not being mindful. Mindful is realizing that this is a chitta that is annoyed. See, now you're mindful. You're mindful of what really is, what's really going on. What's what really exists. Because if you're, you know, you're you're mindful of something that's not there. What's the point of being? What is the point of that mindfulness? You look at the moon and you see a rabbit on there. You say, oh, there's a rabbit up there. Rabbit, 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 rabbit. What is the point of that mindfulness? You see a mirage and you think there's water there. Water, 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 water. What is the point of that mindfulness? What good is it going to bring you? Hmm? What good is it going to bring you? So you think that's water and you're now you're thirsty. What do you do? You run. You run towards the mirage. Is that going to help you? No, every step you take is only going to make you thirstier because now you're expending more water out of your system trying to get there. Yeah, it's only going to make you thirstier. Pointless. So mindfulness is not just is not merely knowing that there is something in front of you, something in your hand or something ahead of you. It is being mindful of what it really is. Mindfulness without insightfulness is pointless. Mindfulness only is a force a powerful force when it is coupled with insight, when it's coupled with wisdom. Then you're mindfully aware of what's really going on. So now you're angry, you're annoyed. Be mindful that this is a chitta that is annoyed. Not I'm annoyed. If I'm the one who's annoyed, how come I didn't feel this a moment ago? How come I don't feel this in the next few moments? This is just a chitta. This chitta will arise and it will pass away. There are causes, this, this, this annoyance is conditioned. There are causes which has which has brought up this annoyance. Right? This this is a this is a, a mental irritation. That is what this is. Um, the mind is irritated. It's, it just lives in a chitta. It's one of these things. Come to that con- contemplation. Come to that idea. Once you come to this idea, now you realize, well, if it's just a chitta, then this is not a fixed thing. It's something that arises and passes away. This is a manifestation of causes that are present at this moment in time. Now you don't identify this as yourself. So then you no longer become self-conscious. Now you're, no longer, now you're not self-conscious. You're rather chitta-conscious. You're reality-conscious. Now you're mindful. This mindfulness you can do doing whatever. This is true mindfulness. Being mindful that this is just a chitta. So if it's just a chitta, now you realize that a chitta is something that is conditioned. Right? A chitta is conditioned by the causes that are available at the point of it, ari- uh, of it arising. So what are those causes? Because of course, you know, an annoyed chitta hurts itself first before it can hurt others. Right? Anger is like holding on to a hot rod and, you, and wanting to hit someone or strike someone with it. Who's, who's burnt first? The one who's holding it. That is what anger, that is the Buddha's metaphor for anger. If you're angry, it's like holding on to a hot rod and then trying to attack someone with it. You are burnt first. And actually you are burnt, you are burnt most because when you hold on to it, the harder you want to strike, the harder you hold it. Yeah, If you want to really inflict severe punishment on the other person, if you want to make it a really hard attack, you hold it harder. The harder you hold, the harder you burn. That's what anger is like. 
But recognize that it's just a chitta. Once you come to your senses that this is just a chitta, now you know from the teachings you've, you've learned from here, right? A chitta is just a mere manifestation of causes. This is a rupa. There's a rupa somewhere here. There's a vedana somewhere here. There's a sanya, there's a sankara, there's a vijnana somewhere here. That is what's going on. So now you come to your senses. But it's not just the rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara, vijnana. There's an abhisankara process going on here. There's an expectation here. There's a separation here. Again, you know, now you're, you're contemplating on this. That contemplation will soon enough fix it. One chitta will go annoyed, the next one will go a little bit less annoyed, the next one will go a little bit less annoyed, and eventually you'll come out of it. Because remember, every chitta that arises, folks, has an effect on the base, which is where chittas arise. Every chitta that arises has an effect on the base. It'll either cleanse it, it'll, or it'll... What's the opposite of cleansing? Defile it, thank you. It'll either defile it or it'll cleanse it. It'll do one of these two things. Every chitta will do that. See, this is, I'll, I'll give you examples of where this happens to you. Do you remember when you sit in front of the TV and you think to yourself, you will have thought to yourself, I'm only going to watch this for two minutes, five minutes, maybe half an hour, maybe an hour at most, and then after that I've got, I've got work to do. So I have to go and do my work, but you look at the clock, it's now 2.30, so by 3.30 I should be getting up and going to do my work. At 2.30 the following day, you're still sat in front of the TV. You only wanted to do it for an hour, but two hours later, three hours later, four hours later, you're still in front of the TV. Now you feel like you're glued to your TV set. Do you, do you, have you never experienced that? You feel like you're glued to the TV. You can't get yourself. You want to, but you can't. And people say the mind is willing, but the flesh is weak. Not so. The flesh is willing, the flesh is always willing. It is the mind that is not willing. See, these moments will come to you. In these moments, right, if you want to try and get out of your seat, you know you shouldn't be there, but you can't, you don't, you feel like you're helpless. Try and remind yourselves what we've learned here in these talks. And otherwise, all this effort is of, of no use. You're coming here, my coming here, us meeting like this, us arranging the room so that you can come and sit here comfortably, listen to the Dhamma, right? All this is only going to be of use if you apply this. In those moments, apply it. Here's the first thing you need to do. Remind yourself that this is not me who wants to be in front of the TV. This is just a chitta. It's almost like you're observing yourself from the outside, right? So pick yourself up from this seat, right? Go around and now look at yourself from outside. Then you'll see what's going on here. Try and take an objective view of yourself. Instead of thinking that you are the victim here, instead of thinking that this is all happening to you, the whole, you know, all hell is breaking loose, don't think, instead of feeling that way, do try and take an objective look at yourself. What's going on here? Just in the, in the same way you would do it for somebody else. That we are also good at, aren't we? When someone comes and says, I'm angry. So right, don't worry, take a seat, let's talk. Huh? <laughs> don't take these things too seriously. What's the problem? Tell me, tell me. Not a problem, how does a problem solve? Come on, tell me. Then you sit down with them, you talk through them, and then you know when they start talking about all the, all these annoyances, issues that they have, you say, No, you know, we just need to take it take it one step at a time. 
See, we're we so good at giving advice to other people. The reason for that is this. There's a reason for that. You know, although we, you know, we mock about it, there's actually a reason for that. And that is this. When you're annoyed, this is a chitta that has no, that has no wisdom in it. It is ridden with ignorance. Ignorance and wisdom, they, co- they both can't ride the same train. Only one at once. So if you're ignorant in that chitta, you can't be also wise in the same chitta. And if you're wise in the chitta, you can't also be ignorant in the same chitta. So what happens when you go and get counsel from somebody else? In their mind, they don't have the same problem, do they? So whilst your mind is running with ignorance, theirs is running with wisdom. So therefore, they seem to have all the answers. That's how that works. That's why when someone else has a problem, you have the answer. But when you have a problem, always somebody else has the answer. How come? How does that work like that? That's what friends do, right? When you're upset, you go and talk to your friend. When they're upset, they come and talk to you. Makes no sense. I mean, if you're the one who your friend talks to when they have a problem, then who should you talk to when you have a problem? Yourself, right? Uh, But it doesn't work like that. In those moments, you need someone to talk to. Even if it's the same friend that you help to come out of that same problem. Because of this. It is because it is not you who's got the problem. It's the chitta that has the problem. In that chitta, if this chitta is defiled, in this chitta you don't have wisdom. That is why having a teacher is such a blessing. You know, a teacher can be anybody. It doesn't have to be a senior monk. It doesn't have to be someone senior. It doesn't have to be like that. A chitta can be anything that brings you back to consciousness. Not self-consciousness, chitta consciousness. Brings you back to your senses. That is a teacher. Sometimes a dead body can be a teacher. At a funeral, maybe, you know, some, you know, perhaps some of you will have, at least if you've taken a moment to reflect on this, you would have thought to yourself, you know, people, they die, don't they? God, I should probably do something about myself as well. I'm going to be dead soon enough. And what has happened to them will happen to me. Now in that moment, they're a teacher. You see a poor man begging on the street and you think to yourself, oh, you know, life is really tough on some people. Look at, the, look at what's happened when people don't give. Hmm? When, they, when they only have a poor man's mindset, look at what's become to them. Or what has come to them. Then you, then you remind yourself, well, if, they, if that's happened to them because they haven't given, then I need to, I need to, I need to give so that I never end, end in that state. You see someone who's, who's ill, maybe they've got a cancer. Right? Maybe they've, they've been smoking all their lives and you think to yourself, oh, I shouldn't do that. Perhaps I should give up now. See, they're a teacher. A teacher is someone who puts you back on the right track. But you see, when a, when a mind is written with ignorance, it can't bring itself back. Why can it not bring itself back? What do you need to be back on the right track? Wisdom. Yeah? But it's already written with ignorance. So therefore, this chitta can't bring itself back. The very least we can do is get the next chitta to do that. If this chitta is angry, there is no way that this chitta can actually extinguish the same anger within itself. So this chitta can't fix itself. The best that can do is the next chitta. So why do we need a teacher? What does a teacher do then? Here's what a teacher does. They give you something through the ear or through the eye, the two main sources of input to reach the mind, either through the ear or through the eye. Either show you something or um, 
That's showing you something. Yeah? Yes. That's showing you something. Continue. Stop. Showing you something or telling you something. In that, mind, in, in that moment, what happens is the mind base, you know, the environment is changed. The environment changes because this anger runs in the mind. This is Dhamma and mind. Dhamma and mind. Dhamma and mind coming into contact. Now we know how, how chittas arise, right? Eye and sight. Right? Sound and ear. Taste and tongue. Smell and nose. Right? Tactile sensations in the body. And Dhamma and mind. These are the, the two faculties. right? From the outside, one from the inside. They come into contact and the chitta is born. When you are angry, this is what happens. Mind and Dhamma. You know, whatever the, the, the point of contention that you have in your mind, that keeps on, you know, you keep feeding yourself. You don't need an external stimuli for this. That's why you can, be, you can still be angry about something that happened yesterday. Where is that event now? Hmm? Someone, someone swore at you and now they're no longer. But you can still be angry with them. Maybe they got run down by a bus on their way home yesterday. You still think that they're there and you're angry. But they're dead. But still you're angry. How so? Because now you, 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 know, you don't, to, be, to continue to be angry, you don't need the eye or the ear right, constantly feeding you. The mind can do it itself. Mind and Dhamma, through memory, you bring it back to, out of, to, out with memory, and now you continue to have those chittas. So you're angry. So what needs to happen is the, is the environment needs to change. And how does the environment change? A teacher can do that for you. So what does the teacher say? Why are you angry? Is, it, is, is there any point to being angry? Now when that input comes from the ear, the mind can, has to now stop taking inputs from, you know, taking the Dhamma inputs. Is this making sense? Right? There are the inputs and there are the faculties. These two combine and chitta is formed. Right? So, but it is not you who does this. These are all cause and effect driven. So when the ear takes precedence, Right? Right? Some, a message comes from the ear. Now the mind has no choice but to understand it. Just like you have no choice but to understand what I'm saying. Can you try and not understand what I'm saying? Can you? Okay, then try and not understand the next thing I'm going to tell you. See, you can't do that. You understood that, right? Exactly. Because it is not you who's understanding. Understanding is not an active process. It's a passive process. <laughs> the same as everything else. They're all passive processes. You think you lo you're looking at something, but really, in reality, you're only seeing something. Right? So, so what happens is, this, this is the mind dhamma, mind dhamma, mind dhamma. I'll just draw it here so it's clear. So here's what happened yesterday. <clears throat> Someone said something. They were angry with you. They swore at you. Okay? Now that goes into your memory. And what's happening today is in the mind, this is the Dhamma from memory coming into contact with the uh, uh, mind faculty and a chitta is born. Okay? So this is why you're angry about something that happened yesterday. By yesterday, I mean you know, on a previous occasion. Okay, now these chittas, 
They keep on running. And in each of these chittas, you're angry. But this event only happened 24 hours ago. But you're still angry. Why? Because that went into memory. And from memory, you keep drawing those dhammas and coming, come into contact with the mind faculty and these chittas are born. So here's what happens then. You meet a, che- a teacher. You know, and by a teacher, it could be you know, someone, maybe a butterfly. You see a butterfly. That is through the eye, of course. Right? So what happens then? This process has to stop temporarily. Now, the eye comes into contact with sight. Okay? And now, what continue to, uh, to run as chittas that, are, that were taking the dhammas as their object, from here on, will run as chittas that take sight as their object. So you're no longer running that series of chittas. Now it's a different series. And, but remember, each chitta has an effect on the base. It either cleanses or it defiles. Of course, looking at a butterfly is not going to permanently cleanse, but what it's going to do is temporarily make you focus on something else. That is why when people feel angry, you know, they, they go for a walk. Say, take a walk. What, they're trying to, what, what people try to do is, this is, this is psychology, not Buddhism, psychology. What people do is when they are so focused on something that annoys them, what they do is they try and shift their attention to something else. Yes, it works. <laughs> Temporarily it works. It is not a permanent fix. It's like eating when you're hungry. It works. Temporarily. How do you know it's temporary? Need I say? <laughs> Anymore. Right? So, it works temporarily. When you go for a walk, you're no longer thinking about the event. You know, what happened. You're not, no, you're not thinking about this. You're thinking about, you know, maybe you're taking a walk on the beach. You're walking on the promenade and you see the sea. You see the calm waves and you think, ah, oh, calm waves. You see the sun setting. You see, you know, you know, some kids playing, and you, you know, it, you, you change your attention to something else, temporary. That's why when you have a real problem on your head, what do you do? Sleep. What does that happen? What does that, what does that do to you? It shifts your attention from this to something else. Or go and watch TV. Hmm? Binge eating, or binge drinking, or binge binging on Netflix. These are things that people have learned to do when they have problems. Or go to the gym. Right? Things people do when they have a problem. They try to focus on something else. Maybe they bring a fish tank and sit in front of the fish tank and look at the fish. I mean, why do you need refuge in the Noble Triple Gem when a fish can be your refuge? <laughs> These are all very temporary you know, plasters to gaping wounds. They don't fix the problem. They're all just very temporary measures. You don't need to be like that because you know what's going on here. So when you see that sight, what have you seen? You've seen a butterfly. How do you do a butterfly? That's a butterfly. When you see a butterfly, now this Dhamma cannot come in contact with the mind faculty because the eye consciousness now is now dropping rupa onto the mind faculty because one chitta cannot take two objects. Yeah, that is a fact. One chitta cannot take two objects. So you can't think of two things with the same chitta. 
Although you feel like you're multitasking at times, you're not really multitasking. The chittas are running at such a rapid rate that perhaps in one chitta you're, you, you're listening to the sermon, the next chitta you feel like you're, you feel the, the seat that you're on. In the next chitta you're breathing. In the next chitta you're, you're seeing something, right? But it happens so rapidly that you feel like it's all happening at once. That's okay. I mean, thankfully, because it's the, that's the way it is, we can, it's, it's convenient for us to live our lives. If we were able to perceive each chitta on its own, then life would become almost unlivable. So we are, we are glad and grateful that that is how it works. But we need to understand that that is what's going on behind the scenes. So when this happens, right now, this Dhamma can no longer come into contact with the mind faculty because the I is now has taken over. The I has taken over. Now let's replace this with a Kalyanamitra. Let's see what a Kalyanamitra does. A Kalyanamitra is someone who also gives Dhamma Right, but this Dhamma initially has to come through the ear. So they say something. For example, say you're really annoyed about something and someone says, Anicca. Okay, someone says the word Anicca. Let's see what happens. Let's see how that is a remedy to your problem. And then you'll understand why noble association is everything. Noble association either that comes through the mind itself or from the outside. Noble association is everything. How so the mind itself? Once you become a sotapan, the Dhamma is then instilled in your mind, never to be removed again. It's there, it's always there. Right? Now you can be your own refuge. Because if you have the Dhamma, Dhamma Have Rakati, Dhamma Chari. Right? If you have the Dhamma within you, that Dhamma will be your refuge. That is why a Sotapanna cannot go to the hells ever from there on. Because they, the Dhamma that they have understood is their refuge. The Kalyanamitra is now installed within. Until then, you need the Kalyanamitra to come from the outside. So let's see what happens when, when that happens. Dhamma and mind faculty again. So remember, each of these chittas is defiling. Each of these chittas is defiling the environment and therefore... The problem just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And you know this, right? So, you know, let's say when you're first, you're first irritated with something. Before you get annoyed, you become irritated initially. Let's say, say someone's, uh, you're sat on a, say you're, you're on a bus or on a train or some mode of public transport. Someone sat next to you, right? This is a seat for two people, but they are one and a half, right? <laughs> and you're one. So now, you know, they are, they are encroaching on your space, right? And so you, you try and take as little uh, space as possible, but, you know, but they, they, you know, they seem to take liberty and they, they want to take as much room as possible. So they're not very, they're not very thoughtful that, about the fact that there's someone else out there. So, you know, they just, you know, uh, take, take up all the room that they can and they, 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 they're rubbing against you. In fact, they're rubbing you up the wrong way right now. Right? So now you begin to feel uncomfortable. So initially you go, sorry, <clears throat> as if it's your fault. Hmm? So, oh, sorry, sorry. You're trying to tell them in a polite way, please can you keep your distance by saying that the fault is mine. Excuse, sorry. And then again, like, you know, the bus is moving, right? And then they apply the brakes again. And then once again, you know, they fall onto you. And, and to make matters worse, the guy is sleepy as well. So he, his head keeps falling on your shoulder. 
right? And you don't like it. For some reason, you don't like it. You're, you're getting annoyed now. Right? Then you say, excuse me. Sorry, um, you know, just uh, you're struggling to find the words, right? How, how do you, how, because you don't want to offend anyone. You're, you're a nice person. Of course you're a nice person. Yeah, you come to the monastery, you're nice people, of course you are. You listen to the sermons, you subscribe to Jetavaranama Buddhist monastery. You must be nice people. So you're, you're trying to tell this guy uh, in, a, in a polite way, right? So, sir, sorry, I'm, you know, do you mind? You, 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 you try and bring yourself up to that. You pick up the courage to, to utter these words, do you mind? And they look at you and go, What? And then you have to say, no, I'm sorry, uh, um, I don't know whether I'm you know, bumping into you or you into me. Uh, <laughs> perhaps, you know, you could just uh, maybe, you know, there's only room for two of us. Right? <laughs> maybe just, uh, if you could just move your arm or your leg a little bit to the, to your, to your, towards yourself, and I think that will give us enough room. Oh, okay, says the guy. So now you're thinking, you know, we're not getting on. You know, we're not on the same wavelength. Right? So, but again, a little bit later... Once again, you know, he, he rubs, rubs onto you and now you're, you're getting, you, you do that, right? No? You know, you know the drill, right? So now you're giving verbal uh, feedback. You tried nicely, you tried politely, it's not working. Right? You, the chuk-chuk start, start, start coming now, right? And then after that, uh, when, you, when it gets really unbearable, then you're going to have to speak up and say, excuse me, do you mind? Right? You know, we've both bought tickets, we're both entitled to, to sit here, but you seem to be encroaching on my space, right? so, so please, do you mind? It might, you might even develop that, develop that conversation, can develop that far. And usually what you do is you just get up and go and find another seat. But, you know, if it's a crowded bus and you, there's nowhere else to go and you, you, you need the seat as well, it could go that far. So, where, you know, you pick up the courage and you say these things. So, this is, this is the path of one thing leads to the next. You know, you didn't say that initially. You said that right at the end. Maybe you might even, you've heard, I know you probably don't do this or ever have done this, but you will have heard people who actually get into a fight because they can't share the same seat. Have you not heard this? Not seen people do that? They fight over things like that. Then they start screaming. Not realizing that, you know, every, everything they say out loud is an embarrassment to themselves. Right? Then they start talking about, you know, their mothers and their fathers and right, all sorts of swear words. Right? They're now washing their dirty laundry in public. But they didn't start with that, did they? No fight starts with a punch. It only starts with a mental irritation initially, but it gradually develops. One thing leads to the other. Why does that happen? Because the, the chitta that hits is not the chitta that got angry in the first place. So how come then, if it's not the same chitta, the chitta that hit is not the same chitta that got angry in the first place, why does it hit? And why did it not hit in the first chitta? You've got you to think about this. The reason for that is, it's the, it's, it's, the, it's the environment. Each chitta defiles the environment for the next chitta. And it defiles it for the next chitta. And it defiles it for the next chitta. So that by the time it comes to, say, the billionth chitta, right? how long does it take to, to run a billion chittas? Maybe two seconds. Right? By the time it gets to the billionth chitta, you're really annoyed. 
But that is not the initial chitta that got annoyed or irritated. This is the chitta that's now ready to hit them with something. Slap them maybe. Right? Why? Because the environment continues to be defiled. The base in which these chittas arise, it continues to be defiled. Each chitta is responsible for that. It keeps on defiling. In the same way that to Nibbana it keeps on cleansing. That is why listening to one sermon is not going to do it for you because you need, it is a, it is a process. It will take a while. You need to cleanse. Each chitta will cleanse it. Every chitta in which the Noble Eightfold Path runs in your mind or your mind runs the Noble Eightfold Path, that is a chitta that has cleansed. It will go to Samma, Samma Ditti, Samma Sati, Samma Sankapa and so on. Samma Samadhi, Samma Jnana, Samma Vimukti. Each chitta will cleanse it. Each chitta cleanses. Each chitta cleanses until eventually the last, what shall I say, the last bit of defilements or the last cankers, right? The last bit of the last bit of impurity is cleansed by the arahat marga chitta. The arahat marga chitta. You have heard of this. Sotapana marga chitta, sotapana pala chitta, right? The path and the fruit. That the arahat marga chitta is the, is the chitta that is responsible for purifying the last bit, the last bit of defilements. And when that is done, the next chitta is the arahat pala chitta. When that chitta arises, the mind is completely pure, pure of defilements. Like a placid lake, pure, settled, tranquil, serene. No more ignorance, no more attachment. That is why it takes time. You know, this is why your arahatthood is not instant. Others, you might wonder, you know, how many sermons have, been, have we been coming to? How many meditation programs have we been coming to? How many times have we engaged in so many merits and so on? But it's not like that. It happens over time. That is why consistency is the name of this game. You've got to do it time and time and time and time again. It's not, there's not a lot to do. There's only little to do, but you have to keep doing it. It's not like a lot that you can do a few times. This is a little to be done all the time. That is the difference. That is why a lot of people give up. Because what people don't have is the resilience to keep going on. They're prepared to come for a one-week meditation program, but what they can't do is commit, dedicate their lives to it because it feels like an entire lifetime. God, that long? Why do you feel that way as well? Again, because of jati. When, the, when one chitta arises, right, in that chitta, how do you perceive the future, me, you perceive the future me when you think to yourself that it is I who is here now and it is I who will be in the future. Again, Jati is doing this. I was, I am and I will be. But that is not so. These are individual chittas. How can a chitta be in the past and a chitta be in the future? That, is, that can't be. But your sense of self gives you this perception, gives you this illusion. Come back to this. Now there's the teacher that's telling you, Anicca. Right? So, let's say you only just started. Someone's just rubbing against you and you come to the chakchuk state. That state. You've gotten there, but you haven't decided to attack them yet. But you plug your RMI3, (laughs) (laughs) your earphones, and you think, oh, can't be bothered with this. I should try and listen to a sermon or something. Right? Then you you listen to your RMI3 now. 
May I and all beings in all worlds be freed from the fire of desire, freed from the fire of aversion. And now you think, oh God, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. What, why, what am I doing here? See, what did that do to you? The Dhamma. Here's the Dhamma. Dhammo have rakati dhammachari. The Dhamma has now come to your refuge. See? Quite literally, the Dhamma has come to your refuge. Because if you don't seek refuge in the Dhamma in this moment, what's going to happen next? Started with the Chakchuk, but what's going to, it's going to end with? Murder. Can't go that far. And if you've done the deed, then who has to suffer the consequences? Who else? See how the Dhamma now helps you. You know, that is why actually it makes sense. Like even if you're traveling around, you know, if you have your earphones plugged in at least, right? You're, you're with the Dhamma. That is a good thing to do. I've seen a lot of people, you know, they do, like when they're driving around, they play the, the, on the stereo, they listen to the Dhamma, or they're, you know, walking, going around in the bus, you know, walking on the street. Now, of course, you have to be mindful of traffic and all that, so, so you know, be, be careful of that. But otherwise, wherever you can, if you can keep yourself in the Dhamma, Here's what happens. The Dhamma comes into contact with mind, with the mind faculty, and the chitta is born. Whereas these chittas, defiled, I'll draw it in a different color. Whereas these chittas defiled, okay, the environment, let's say this is the environment, so in each moment there's an environment. Once again, this is not a constant thing either. Because the environment is constantly changing. Because there is no such thing that is constant. Nothing is constant. Everything is a manifestation. right? Even the environment in which a chitta is born is also a manifestation. right? So, this chitta defiles. This is more defiled than the first one. This one, again, if it's, if it's, a, if it's a thought in which anger runs, it is even more defiled than this. But now let's say someone preaches the Dhamma. Someone gives you a snippet of Dhamma. Like you hear the word Anicca. In that moment the environment changes. Now here you have this chitta that arises which is the chitta that has Anicca as its object. Okay? Previously you had anger. Now you have Anicca as its object. This chitta arises and now Although this was a dark blue, what this is able to do now is make it a lighter blue. Because now it is cleansing the environment. Not immediate, but it, it, it did what it could do in one chitta. The next chitta rises. It cleanses it a little bit more. The next chitta rises. Right? Because the environment always attracts similar things. That is the way it works. Right? Like things attracts like things. Right? Similar things always attract. Dissimilar things repel. Right? So now this, is, this can start to become an environment for good. There's just still a little bit more blue, a little bit more defilements, but it, can, it started to become a pure environment. And now, the next chitta, you can have an entirely pure environment. This is what happened over a process, a series of chittas. 
Can it not change again? Of course it can. All you need is another. Now here you have a Kalyanamitra. Next you have a Kalyavanamitra. Sorry, that was Sinhalese. Kalyavan is on who delays you. A Kalyana is the one who gives you down. Right? They just sound similar, that's why. It's just a play on words. So when you get a Kalyanamitra, they do that. When you get a Kalyanamitra, they do this. They defile and they cleanse. It's always the environment. So then you have to wonder, what are these people doing by bringing themselves here into this monastery? Why, do you have, why have you come as Sila Sravikas? Why have you come as Uvasis? Why have you come as Sravakas and Anagarikas and Anagarikas and, and decided to stay on as monks? Why do you come on programs? Why do you come and spend a week with us? It is so that you, you can have this happen to you. Because whilst you're here, we never say hit, attack, beat, uh, hurt. What we say is anicca, dukkha, anatta, compassion, loving-kindness, mercy. These are the things that you hear. And each of those things are a dhamma. It changes your mind environment. As the mind environment changes, it becomes more robust, it becomes resilient, it becomes stronger. It fortifies. And eventually it becomes its own environment where good chittas begin to arise, wholesome chittas begin to arise. At some point it, it becomes so cleansed that it can no longer decline to a state where you engage in unmeritorious deeds willingly and joyfully or happily. That is a state at which you have become a sotapanna. Now therefore, that dhamma has been instilled in the mind. It is installed in the mind. The dhamma is there as your own refuge. And after that point, ladies and gentlemen, you know, there is no stopping you from attaining Nibbana. There is no stopping you. Because the dhamma within you continues to feed you. So what we are doing here is creating the, the mind environment for this. That is our practice. So you see, it would be wrong to think that there is nothing to do. Right? For some to think, you know, well, if this is all happening, then is there anything for me to do? If all this is happening, right? what's there for me to do? There is something for you to do. And that is to ensure that you have the right environment. That you have to do. Of course, it is not you who's doing that either. I get it. It's not you who's doing that. It is your drushti that's doing that. Right now, you're here because you want to be here. Right? Because you have this view, this drushti, that being here is going to be effective for you. It's going to be productive to you. It's going to be useful for you. That is why you're here. That is your drushti. But now that you're here, that drushti continues to be fed. It continues to get stronger. Right? It's picking up it's picking up energy. It's picking up potential. And so it continues. So why do you choose to be here than perhaps to be some, somewhere else? Because here's what you do know. Yeah. Somewhere else you suffered. Somewhere else you cried, you wept, you got angry. When lust overcame you, you didn't know what to do. When grievance struck you, you didn't know what to do. When jealousy struck you, you didn't know what to do. When you felt like you were bigger than someone or lesser than someone, you didn't know what to do. You just suffered. That's all you knew what to do, to suffer. When someone had something that you didn't have and you wanted it, you didn't know what to do. You thought, let me go and try and get it. You know, maybe I can borrow it from them. Maybe I can earn for myself and go and buy that. 
right? But that's like feeding hunger. No point. Today you want X, tomorrow you'll want Y. And the moment you get X, now you have to safeguard it. You have to keep it safe. You have to protect it. You become the guardian. Right? Every possession you have, who has to keep it safe? Of course. That is why I have chosen a life of few possessions. Because the few, fewer things I have to keep safe, the more I can focus on my ambition, my objective of Nibbana. Whereas the more things I have to keep safe, the more time in my life I have to commit, I have to dedicate to keeping those things safe. To fulfilling those duties, responsibilities and so on. That is why a life of less is a life that is more. So, in this, you know, when it comes to Nibbana, less is more. If you have less, you have more. If you have less possessions, you have more freedom. What you sacrifice to have more material possessions is more freedom or less freedom. You have to, that is the trade that you have to make. You can think to yourself, I have a big house, I have a big car, I have a big wife. Well, not a big wife. <laughs> right? You can think to yourself, I have all these big things, like great things, right? massive things. I have a mansion, you could think to yourself. But the more you have, the more happiness you have to sacrifice. The more time in your life you have to sacrifice to, for their upkeep, for their maintenance. But now if you, if you ask, you know, I don't even need to worry about my hair. See how simple life is for me. Those days I had to spend, I had to spend in front of the mirror combing it, brushing it, you know, cleaning it, washing it. If, there, if I had dandruff, then I had to do something about treat it. And all these things you have to do. For those who have long hair, <laughs> God help you. <laughs> I, mean, I, I have a lot of sympathy, in fact, you know, for <laughs> a lot of people, you know, especially ladies who have long hair. You know, just I can't imagine just what washing it must be like. And if you wash it, you have to dry it, right? Otherwise, you know, you get headaches and all sorts. Right? So, but, you know, if you, have, if you only have little to maintain, then there is more time left to focus on what you really need to do. That is why I'm, I'm, I'm happy with little. It's not because I can only afford a little. This is not about being able to afford. You know, it's okay to be someone who can afford the entire world. Right? It's not your, it's not your wealth that is your problem. That's not what it is. If you are rich, then so be it. If you can afford half this country, great. But if you are the owner of half this country, now you have a problem. Because now you have to maintain it. I'm someone who likes to use whatever I need, but not own it. I don't have a car, but when I need one, there's always one. See? When I used to have a car, it wasn't always there, because either it was at the garage <laughs> or someone else at home would, would drive it, and then I, I don't have the car. But now, I don't have a car, so I don't have to, I don't have to uh, you know, check where I've left the keys, I don't have to check the fuel, I don't have to take it for a service, I don't have to pay the tax, 
I don't have to check the tires. I don't have to check the indicators. I don't have to check anything. I don't have to check the water. I don't have to check the oil. I don't have to check any of those things. But when I need a car, I just have to say, please, can I have a car? And there's a car. What do you need a car for? To own or to be driven around in? Which one? To drive, right? Not to own. What do you need a pen for? To own or to write? To write. Whose pen is this? I'll tell you, it's not mine. But am I not the one who's writing with it right now? It's not mine. It belongs to the monastery, perhaps. But the monastery is not mine either. What do you need a shelter for? To take cover or to own? What do you think? To take cover. What do you need a chair for? To own or to sit? To sit. Are you not all sitting right now? But do you own that chair? No, see? But, you know, it's serving its purpose. You're quite comfortable. See, these things, they're not to be owned. They're to be used. When we need them. Now, that is God's rules. Right? I'll give you everything. Just use it. Don't try to own it. I'm the owner, says God. But when we try to play God, and we start claiming things, then God punishes us. You only suffer because of the things you own. <laughs> Prove me wrong if you can. You only suffer because of the things you own. If that prayer that you have on your, carry on your shoulders, ladies, gentlemen, what is a prayer mat for? To pray or to own? To pray. But if you claim it to be yours, you won't be able to sleep easy. <laughs> because you will always have to check, where is it? Who's taken it? Huh? Where is it? Why have they taken it? Why haven't they returned it? See? But if, it's, if there's one so that you can pray when you need it. See? That's not my prayer mat. But when I need to pray, it's there. What a simple life that is. All it requires is a change of our attitudes. We have learned to want to own everything. Try and break free from that. And you, and you, you will feel like you want to own things when ignorance and attachment takes grasp of your mind. Right? Because when you feel like you are one, right? you are a person, you are an identity, you are one, you are a self. Now for the safeguarding of the self, you'll need to keep everything that you need around you close to your heart, close to yourself. Because what if you, know, you need it and it's not there? You begin to, you, you begin to fear. When I need a car, if it's not there, then what, 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 what's going to happen? So I better buy one and keep one for, one for myself. I don't have a car, but I have one whenever I need it. This thinking is flawed. Try and come out of it. You are, you, you are stuck in a flawed thinking. The thinking that if you... To use something, you have to own it. Try and come out of that thinking. It is not true. Truth be told, I don't even own this robe. So that if you come and ask for it, I have to give it to you. I have to. I don't even own this robe. It is, a robe is necessary to cover the body. Yes. But I don't own the robe. So if you took it, I, it's not going to make me upset. Because I don't own it, but I use it. So try and come out of this mentality of ownership. And subscribe to the mentality of usership. Using, using is fine. When you need a glass or a cup, you can't use a plate for that. You have to use a cup for it. When you need a pen, you can't use a pencil for that. You have to use a pen for it. But... Neither of these things should you own or do you need to own. 
So why do you own? Because of ignorance. When, when self happens in the mind, when this, when this perception of self happens in the mind, you are so focused on keeping the self happy. Keeping the self happy. That becomes the be-all and end-all of your life. Keeping the self happy. Keeping myself happy. That is why the more you focus on a self, the less you can focus on others. If you have a big self, right? if you are so focused on yourself, very little energy do you have then to focus on, on the good of, you know, of the masses, on the good for all. Whereas you are more focused on oneself. And you can see this everywhere in society. But when you don't need to guard yourself, right? then you realize that this is a body. The body needs things. It needs shelter. It needs, uh, it needs clothes. It needs medicine. It needs food. Then I use it. If it's there, I use it. If it's not there, I try and find it, but I don't need to own it. But in your lives, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you suffer, and this goes, you know, this is true for monks, anagarikas, anagarikas as well. Right? If you come, if you can, if you get into this mentality that this is my robe, you will suffer. There stops your monkhood. There stops your monkhood. If you are an upasaka or an upasika. If your if your if your if your prayer mat, you believe belongs to you, the, you are the owner of your prayer mat. Then that is all you own. You know you don't know, you no longer own happiness. What you own is a prayer mat. That's what you own. Wherever you you want something to own, you sacrifice a bit of your happiness. So someone who owns everything is one who owns who has nothing. That is why in this sasana, less is more. The less you own, the more you're happy. Don't you think I'm speaking of conviction here? Do you think I'm just making stuff up just to, you know, I'm a, am I a crowd pleaser? <laughs> am I just saying these things to make you happy? No. I'm saying these things because I am happy. Not to make you happy. Because I am happy. Absolutely. To make it you are. You have to be responsible for your own happiness. For that, you just need to realize the truth that's going on here. Realize the truth. That is what we've come here for. And you can all realize that. Because if this chitta can, if this mind can, why can't this mind? Is it I as a monk, whatever name my teachers have given me, is it I, that person who has understood the truth? No. It is the chitta, it is the mind that has understood the truth. So if a mind can, why can't another mind? All you need is the environment. The environment is what we create here, what we make available here. But that is why we have plenty of opportunities to engage in merits. We have plenty of opportunities to have a teacher. We have plenty of opportunities to, to listen to the Dhamma, to practice the Dhamma. And make it your life's purpose. You sacrifice your time, I sacrifice my life. Therefore, the investment that I am making is incomparable. I have nothing more to give to the sasana, honestly. Maybe you make a donation to the sasana, perhaps. Right? Perhaps some of you, you know, make you make a regular donation to the sasana, maybe. Maybe some of you have donated, uh, you know, maybe the, this chair, these chairs, all of these chairs. Perhaps this was a donation that you had made. Maybe that camera that's staring at me like that is a donation that you had made. 
Maybe this building is a donation that you had made. I donated my life. You can't compare that with anything. This is the ultimate donation. The ultimate giving up. My entire life has been given to the sasana. May the sasana choose what it wants to do with this. Because I have given up, I get everything. The degree to which you are able to give up is the degree to which you can get. The more you hold on to things, all you get is suffering, grief and fear. Whether it is your children, whether it is your car, your wife, your house, your job, your status, whatever it is, your appearance, whatever it might be. Maybe there are some among you who don't wish to, to take this step yet because you're fearable, you don't want to cut your hair yet. Maybe you're attached to that. Perhaps. You, know, you, you, you like to live the, monk, uh, the life of a monk, but you like your hair. <laughs> See what you're sacrificing in return? You're sacrificing ultimate bliss in return for keeping your hair on. For how long? For another how many years? After that, it's gone. So, you know, here's, here's, the, here's the best advice I can give you. Right, the last thing I'll say for today. Don't hold on to petty things. Let it go. Don't hold on to petty things. Because holding on to those petty things, you sacrifice something magnificent. Something incomparable. Don't make those foolish mistakes. Losing what you have right now can be a little bit daunting. Yes, it can be. Letting go of your PlayStation can be a little bit daunting. Yes, maybe your mobile phone. You feel like, oh, can I live without it? We all used to live with mobile phones. Look at us. Have we lost a limb? (laughs) I used to always carry my mobile phone around with me. My laptop used to be one of my best friends. I've not lost a limb because I let go of it. But in those moments you feel like, can I live without this? That is what the, that is what the mind feels when jati happens. It'll feel that way. You might feel, you know, can I live without my children? Can I? Or will I die without them? Can I, can I, can I bring myself up to make my mind up to, to live without them? Well, look at those people who've, who've managed to give them up. Not give them up to a children's home, give them up to the sasana. Look, look what a happy life they live. Feel the fear and do it anyway, if you're doing the right thing. That is the best remedy for fear, action. Here's why action is the best remedy for fear. The moment you take action, you realize that fear was simply a concoction of the mind. You'll, re- you'll realize that for yourself. Until then, you'll feel like the fear has consumed you. You'll feel like you are fear. You'll feel that way. Until you take action. Once you take action, you realize fear was simply you know, a figment of the, own, of, of the mind itself. It was simply a creation of the mind. It was not there really. Although it felt like it was palpable, it's not really there. It's just a creation of the mind. It's, you know, it's just an illusion. 
But to, to realize that, you have to take action. You know, it's like if you're in a nightmare, what's the only thing that you need to do? Wake up. The moment you wake up, you realize it was a nightmare. Yeah, so in the same way, if you are holding yourself back for whatever reason, I do realize that these are all mere, yeah, you know, these are all mere insignificancies. Just let them go. They're not, they're not meaningful. What you're sacrificing in return is ultimate bliss, and it's not worth it. It's not worth it because if you don't do it today, you'll have to do it someday. Why can't that someday be today? I ask you. Hmm? Why can't that someday be today? If you all know, right? Don't, don't you all agree that the only way to Nibbana is through Arahathud? Yeah? Right? So if you all need to attain Paranibbana one day, you have to become Arahants, right? That day has to come someday, right? So why can't that someday be today? If it's going to happen someday for you, you might as well do it now. <laughs> because if it's difficult for you today, it's going to be difficult for you then. If it's going to be difficult for you next year, it's going to be difficult for you in 2025. It will. So you say, you're not ready yet. How do you become ready? How does the boxer become ready? By punching the bag. How does a swimmer, an athlete, become a good swimmer? By jumping into the water. Not by standing outside looking at the water. You know, are you that kind of person who stands in front of the shower, you open the shower, the water is cold, I don't want to get into the shower. And you let the water run for about three minutes. Huh? You, you think, uh, no, no, not, not that, no, no, no. Hmm? You know, if you're that kind of person, there's a problem with your thinking. Whether you do it now or in three minutes time, you're going to have to face the truth. You're only prolonging your suffering. It's not going to go away. The water is going to be just as cold. So if, you have to, if you're going to have to get into the water, you might as well do it now. Huh? Is the water going to get any warmer? No. <laughs> I've seen people do that. They go in front of the, the, the shower, the, you know, <laughs> or, or maybe a pool or a pond they need to get into. No, not ready yet. You know, there's a pond outside here. Huh? I've seen sometimes when people, you know, they take the bucket, the first bucket of water, and then they think, no, should I now? Oh, no, no, not yet. <laughs> they hold the bucket to their to their head. You know, just just before toppling the water on, or pouring the water over your head, of their heads. No, no, it's too cold, too cold, too cold, and put it back down. You know, whether you do it now or in an hour's time. Or tomorrow, it's still going to be just as cold, so you might as well do it now. And be done with it. Whether you do it in the Gautama Buddha Sasana or the Maitri Buddha Sasana, there's only one way to Nibbana. Hmm? You've come all this way, passing Padamuttara Buddha Sasana hmm? and various other Buddha Sasanas because you always prolonged it, you postponed it procrastinated. If you do it now, it'll be done. <laughs> you know, th these are the inevitable things of life, right? You have to do it somehow. You know, it's like, you know, let's say, uh, you know, you, as a mother, you got pregnant, 
Right now you have to push the baby out, right? right? Do you think to yourself, not now. <laughs> now the baby is ready to come, the water is broken. Oh no, not now, not now. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. It's too hard, too hard, too hard. Not now. <laughs> What's the point of postponing? <laughs> you're going to have to go through it anyway. Right? So if you're going to do it, you might as well do it now. If the baby's in there, it's going to come out someday. So you might as well do it now. In the same way, right? You know, if you're going to do it, you might as well do it now. Because no matter when you decide to do when you choose to do you're still going to have to do it. So, if you are a Buddhist, do realize that you are only a Buddhist in a chitta. And once you realize that this is only a chitta in which you are a Buddhist, you will recognize that the chitta is the result of the environment which spawns it. So what you need to do is to ensure that you keep yourself in that environment. When you are angry, there is nothing you can do about it. After you are angry, there is nothing you can do about it. You have to let it run its course. If you feel sensual lust or desire, once it's arisen in your mind, there is nothing you can do, you have to let it run its course. Because in those chittas, ignorance has already taken its root. So don't, you know, don't expect you to be without... I say this because on occasion sometimes I've heard people say, Swami Nasa, you know, when I get angry, I get angry. What can I do? It's just my weakness, my flaw. What can I do? When I'm angry, I'm angry. I said, there is something you can do. Train yourself so you don't get angry in the first place. That is what you can do. When you're angry, you're angry. Yes, I get that. There's nothing you can do after you're angry. Because once you're angry, these chittas are all running with ignorance. I get that. But if you're not doing what you're supposed to do, to not be angry in the first place, now you're not doing the right thing. Whose responsibility is that? That is your responsibility. When you're angry, I'm not going to come and give the Dhamma to you. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm saying, like, okay, fine. If you're angry, then run its course. Anyway, it's like the pressure cooker. Once the pressure has built up, right? there is nothing you can do other than release the pressure. There's nothing you can do. But if you know that that's going to happen, you can turn off the fire at the beginning. Before it builds up. So don't be someone for whom it's too little, too late. You know, when, when, when it's time to... When it's time to suffer the consequences, there's nothing you can do. When you go to the hells, there is nothing you can do. If you are born without a limb, there's nothing you can do. If you are born deaf and blind, there's nothing you can do. It's too late then. Once you've fallen, you've fallen. There's nothing you can do about that. All you can do is ensure that you don't fall again. That is a fool who falls once and then doesn't do anything about it. If you are walking along this road, right, and say there's a rock on which you always snub your toe. If it happens to you once, okay. Hmm? That's, a, that's just a happening. But if it happens again, do you think you're wise? Only a fool will let that happen. So therefore, if you snub your toe on something, remove it. So you don't do that again to yourself. In the same way, if you know that you have anger, you have lust, you have these you know, various uh, uh, defilements of the mind, then do something about it now. Don't moan about it, complain about it after the fact. The aftermath, we can't do anything about. We must always sort it before. That is your practice. 
That is what we train at this monastery. Right? For whoever comes here, we train them so that they are ready for it when the inevitable happens. And I'm not just talking about death. This is also a kind of death. When you're angry, that is also a death. You know, you're, you're as good as dead when you're angry. Because what you're going to do next is probably going to get you killed. <laughs> yeah? So you're good as angry. When you feel an uncontrollable sense of lust, you're as good as dead. Because the next thing you do could get you killed. Imagine if you had a desire towards another man's wife. What's going to happen then? Or the queen. Imagine that. If you looked at the queen one day and thought, ooh, I'd like her. <laughs> you better run away and hide. Because what if you feel it again and again and again? There's going to come, to come a point where your mind will completely lose control. You will not see the truth. You will not see right from wrong. Because when the mind is so vexed, there comes a point, ladies and gentlemen, when it gets so vexed, it completely goes blind. That's to say love is blind. You've heard this, right? Love is blind. What do they mean by that? When the mind desires something so terribly, right? When it, when it, when it, when it desires something so badly, it doesn't see fact. It doesn't see the environment. It doesn't see consequences. It doesn't see right from wrong. It doesn't see any of that. It just wants what it wants. When someone wishes to commit suicide, it's blind. They just jump. They don't realize what's going to happen after this. They're blind. So you can't blame someone once they feel suicidal. It's too late for that. What you've got to do is help them before they get there. Sorry, I know I'm getting carried away here. But I have to say this one thing, last, lastly. Remember some, some time ago I showed you this video of uh, there's this new drug that's doing the rounds right? in, uh, in America, in Philadelphia and so on. Right? Uh, trank. This is a horse tranquilizer. Hmm? Xylazine, I think the drug is called. And I told you and I warned you back then that it's going to come soon enough. And guess what? It has. So now, we are starting to see zombies on our streets. It's too late now. Now it's too late. Now it's going to spread rampantly. They know what harm it does to them. They know. But... It's like ice cream. You know what harm it does to you, but you still want it. When you want it, it's blind. Your mind is blind. You know that you know, an affection towards the queen is only going to get you killed. But when you want it, you want it. The mind is helpless then. It's helpless. When you want to watch TV, you know that you have an exam tomorrow and you have to be studying for it, but you, you, know, like someone, you become possessed, don't you? It's almost like you're possessed. And you, you get carried to the TV set. You, you get sat down in front of it. And now I have to speak in passive. It's like, it's not you who's doing it. And the TV comes on. That button gets pressed. You don't press it, you, it gets pressed. Then you can't get yourself out of that seat. You know this. If your, mind, if your phone goes tick, tick, right? you can't stop yourself from checking what's in there. What that message is. It's almost like you are in, you are possessed. The same way, you know, when these minds, they want the drug, they are not going to stop to think about what harm it's going to do to them, what harm it's going to do to their families, right? then it's too late. I'm telling you, I, say, I told you, then I'm going to tell you now again. 
Save your children now. Save your children now before it's too late. Because when they get taste of it, when they try it for the first time, then no point bringing them here. It'll be too late. Then it'll be no point. Save your children now. I know I'm talking to the wrong audience because you've all brought your children here. <laughs> That's the thing, you know. Those who need it, don't get it. Those who get it, don't need it. Always the case in this world. <clears throat> people who go to the seminars are the people who are already successful. They teach you how to become successful. And they're successful. It is the people who need it who don't get it. And the people who get it, they don't need it. But what can I do? I have to say anyway. Right? Even by mistake, if someone clicks on this on YouTube and watches this, even by mistake. They want to watch the next episode of Game of Thrones. At least if they click on this by mistake, they might watch it. By mistake at least. So I'm telling you again, save your children now, save yourselves now. Right? Because in, you will fall into ignoble companionship, those Kalyavanamitras. You will fall into their, into their traps unless you strengthen yourself through the Dhamma. Ensure that you have the right environment to keep you safe. In this environment, you are safe because we have noble companionship to keep you safe. That is what we do. We watch out for each other, one for all and all for one. That is what we do here. When one man is struggling, we all come to their refuge. And every man individually, they commit their lives, they commit their time towards everybody else. That is our ethos, that is our culture at our monastery. So while you can save yourselves, it started doing the, doing the rounds, it's on the streets, and you know, in a cinema near you soon enough. You will start seeing this soon. As you saw on TV, will be as you saw on the streets, will be straight down the road. You know, perhaps the, the guy next door is already, has already started doing it. You don't know it, but you have a kid at home, and when you're out, you know, they have a they, they meet each other, they play with each other, and soon enough, you know, they get it. These days, you know, even in young schools, young children in schools, you know, in primary schools, you know, children, they are exposed to drugs. It's all over the place. In some countries, it's knife crime. In other countries, it's drugs. Other countries, it's sex and pornography. And no matter where you look, there's always going to be either affection, affliction, or comparison. You're going to have all these three, you know, Raga, Dvesha, or Moha. The only place where you're going to find that there is no such problem is where there are no defilements in the mind, where the mind is free through the truth. That is why the truth is so important. That is why I say, finally, the first thing I told you at the beginning, I need all of you to be evangelists. You have to be an ambassador for this Dhamma. People must see it within you. You need to be the, you need to be the, the carrier, the messenger of the Buddha's teaching. That prayer mat on your shoulder has to be a symbol of that. Right? Walk the streets. Go and help people. But you can't help them unless you've helped yourselves. Become someone who is unruffled unbothered, who is undisturbed 
and unperturbed in the face of adversity. Because people try to come and prod you and prick you and provoke you. When they try and do that, you have to be undisturbed. And then they will ask you, how come I tried to annoy you and you didn't even get angry? Tell me your secret. Now you can speak. But if they, if they, if they slap you and you get angry and you slap back, no one's going to ask you, who's your teacher? <laughs> but if they shout at you, they swear at you, they bump into you, and you're the one who says, I'm sorry if I hurt you. Now they're going to, go and they're going to want to know, where did you get that from? I've never heard someone say that. When it's my mistake, how come you're the one who's saying sorry? How did you do that? Then they want to hear, hear what you have to say. Now you become a force to be reckoned with. When you become the right person to be messed with, not the wrong person to be messed with. Hmm? You must have walked around you know, those days saying, hey, don't mess with me, I'm the wrong guy to be me, you're messing the wrong guy. Be the one who can say you're messing around with the right guy. Mess with me and you'll be alright. You should be able to say that. Anagarika Mahatmis, hmm? you should be able to say that. Mess with me and you'll be alright. You make an invitation for other people to come and mess with you. It's fine, because you can't be messed. You can't be messed up. It's impossible to mess you up, because you're sorted. You're done. You're cool. You can't be bothered. If you have sought refuge in the Dhamma, if you have sought refuge in the Noble Triple Gem, you can't be bothered, full stop. Become someone who cannot be bothered, the unbothered. Become someone who's like that. For your sake. I don't mean for others, right? Do it for your sake first, and then others will benefit from that. But do it for yourself initially. Be your own savior. The Buddha is not our savior. He's only our guide. Don't consider him to be your savior. He cannot save you. He can only show you the path to saving yourself. He's not your savior. He's not the captain of your ship, but he's the lighthouse from which he's shown the beacon of light that is the Dhamma. So that you can navigate your own ships ashore to get to Nibbana, to get to freedom. But you have to be the captain of your own ship. I can't do that. I'm just another ship sailing alongside. But I'm heading in one direction. And so therefore I call you. Hey, come on, let's go. Look, see, there's a lighthouse up there. That's where we're all heading. Come on, let's all go. You can choose to take my advice or you can choose to turn around. Reward or repent, either is yours. Long live the Sambhadasasana. So that we can all benefit out of it. We can all heal ourselves. And as we do so, we can do this for everybody else as well. Right. Let's do a merit transfer and bring today's sermon to a close then. Let us all take a moment then to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by listening to the Dhamma, engaging in various meritorious deeds, inviting the Swami says to preach the Dhamma, and contemplating on the Dhamma, and creating a, an environment that has been conducive for others to come and listen to the teaching of the Buddha and free themselves. Let us take a moment to transfer all these merits to those who deserve it. And first and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching and with immense gratitude 
that has transferred this message to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Sripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer these mates that we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that amongst them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us take a moment to transfer these mates to my teacher, Guru Swami Nuhanse, as well as all the monks resident at the monastery and the Anagarika and Anagarika communities as well as the Sila Sravika, Sila Sravika and Sila Vesi communities attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these messages to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these talks, sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them. May they all rejoice in these merits. Let us also take a moment to transfer these messages to friends of the monastery, our devotees, who for the sake of merits to help them attain the bliss of Nibbana, continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes all of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who continue to extend their know-how and their well-wishes. May they all rejoice in these merits and by the power of these merits. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may we all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits. To our mothers and fathers, brothers and wives, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our friends, our acquaintances, our teachers, our employers and employees, as well as those who made great efforts to help us, support us and assist us in any way, shape or form. Let us take a moment to transfer all these merits to them and by the power of these merits, if may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who have committed themselves to the preservation and fulfillment of the Sambuddha Sasana. Let us also transfer these merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. May they all prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to those who have passed away in our name, our forefathers, our loved ones, those who have shed blood, sweat and tears on our behalf, and it is their efforts in it is the fruits of their labor that we are able to enjoy the comforts of today. Being mindful of this and being grateful to all of them for all their sacrifices, let us take a moment to transfer these merits to them. Let us also transfer these merits to members of the armed forces as well as the police force who sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation, as well as those who would have lost their lives in the war, be their friend or foe. Let us transfer these merits to those who would have lost their lives from natural disasters, calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, fires, blizzards, pandemics and so on, reminding ourselves that in this infinitely long journey of sansara, they will all have been mothers and fathers to us, brothers and sisters to us, friends to us, those who would have helped us, supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form possible and available to them. With a, with a sense of gratefulness and gratitude to all of them, with immense compassion and loving kindness to all of them, 
Let us take a moment to transfer all these merits to them. By the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, may by the power of the blessings that we have all acquired today, may by the power of the blessings, may by the, power, may by the blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of Arahants on this blessed land, and may you and I and everyone who has helped make this program a success become a Rahatan Mahanse or an Arahateran in Mahanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the noble Triple Gem be with you all. Sukhayen Sukita Taravitnva Mamada Sialu Loka Sialu Satnvayo Nibbana Parama Sukhayen Sukita Taravitnva Nibbana Parana Sukhayen Sukhita Taravitma Nibbana Parana Sukhayen Sukhita Taravitma Ragagini Niveva Deshagini Niveva Mohagini Niveva Nivansapalabeva 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 Tundruamge Susi Ananta Mahaguna Belen, Silu Loka Silu Satyam, Nibbana Paramasukhe, Sukhita Taravitva, Sadhu Sadhu Sadhu.